0: So let's pray. God, thank you for this privilege to pray. Thank you that you love us, you delight for hear from us, and that, again, you want to bless us more than we've had the courage to ask. So, Lord, I'm going to ask uh, that you would bless beyond what I'm asking tonight, that you would speak to us with power, with conviction, with clarity, and that we would be even more drawn to Jesus than ever. And we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so look for your story in these stories, but I want to start with this. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, we're told this, that we love him, why? Because he, first loved us. because he first loved us. We talked about this in a previous meeting, that no one is going to fall in love with Jesus until they first encounter the reality that Jesus is already in love with them. And so it is only by love that love is awakened. And and encountering this love when we feel that we deserve it the least does something in our hearts, doesn't it? And it says this in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. It says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads to Repentance. repentance? That the undeserved goodness of God and encountering that leads us to an experience of repentance. A recognition that we have a huge need of God, and that we're also in need of a complete change of course and a change in priorities, that there's nothing salvageable in us as we are. We need a new mind. We need a changing of the heart, a changing of the mind, a new covenant experience as we talked about before, right? Removing that heart of stone out of our flesh and giving us a heart of flesh. And Jesus has this conversation with a man named Nicodemus, um, I know this is kind of a side tangent, but it's actually related to this. How many people in this room have seen this series, The Chosen? Is anyone watching that by chance and watching in the series, The Chosen? Um, I'm not a big media guy, but they the the way in which they paint the picture of Nicodemus is phenomenal. Uh, it, it's amazing, and I just every time I see this now, I think of what I saw there, and I'm really really thankful for the way they portrayed him. But in John chapter three and verse one, it says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So does he have a recognition that there's something different about Jesus? Does he have that recognition? Okay. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, is Jesus looking for reasons to keep people out of the kingdom of God? Yes or no? No. No. He's wanting to let Nicodemus understand that, hey, this is not an intellectual venture. Your academic prowess is not what fascinates or interests me. What I want to know is that you understand your true need of a complete transformation of the person, of the character. But Nicodemus doesn't get what he's saying, and he says, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now. Jesus is clearly using an illustration here. Uh, he's not saying you need to literally crawl back in and do it a second time, right? First of all, any mother in this room is going to be thankful for that because eight pounds or nine pounds is one thing. 155 pounds is a whole other thing, right? So that's just not going to be an enjoyable. That's not what he's saying, Nicodemus. So verse five, most assuredly, I say to you that unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he re. He reiterates and clarifies what he's saying, that you need to be born again of the Holy Spirit and of water. He's alluding to baptism here. You can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And then he uses this very fascinating illustration. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So, we are in such desperate need of transformation that the only language Jesus can find to communicate it is a new birth. It is as if you are born a different person than you were before. The transformation is that radical, to be born again. Uh, And this is the primary reason, by the way, that we believe the biblical teaching is baptism by full immersion right? Being buried in the water and raised again in newness of life. We'll address that more in just a moment. But the story here of Nicodemus is unfortunate because Nicodemus is convicted. What Jesus is trying to tell him is you can't fully trace the history of what the Spirit of God is doing in your life, but you can tell that it's doing something, right? When your windows are open on a nice spring day and the curtains are blowing, you don't know where that wind came from or where it's going to go at the end of the day. What you do know is it's doing something in your life, It's doing something in the here and now. And that's what Jesus is trying to help him understand, to give in to what you can see the Spirit doing in your life. You don't need to figure out all the details right now. What you need to do is to respond to what the Spirit is doing that is visible to you and right now. Are you with me? And this is the struggle for Nicodemus because there's a high cost for him. I'm a religious leader and all of my, you know, co-workers, they don't like you, they don't like what you're about, they don't like where this is going, they feel threatened by you, and he's counting the cost, and Nicodemus just doesn't have the courage to say yes. I know there's something different about you, I see evidence, the curtains are blowing in my experience, but I just just can't right now. And what I love about this is that God doesn't give up on him even though that's where he is right now. Amen? Some of us may recognize, I see the Spirit of God doing something, and I sense God telling me to act right now, and I'm struggling with the cost of that. It's a heavy cost for me, right? Nicodemus had that. And unfortunately, Nicodemus doesn't respond right here. But the good news is, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Nicodemus does respond, and he goes all in basically liquidates all of his assets and goes all in and supporting the gospel work. He does eventually come around, and he even advocates for Jesus and some of their councils while Jesus is still alive, but he's struggling, guys. You ever been there? You know where this is going, but you just, I don't know if I can do that right now. Nicodemus felt that struggle. He felt it, and uh, I love how Jesus dealt with him, but go to Romans chapter 6. Says Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? death. Therefore, what did we do? we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So Paul's equating this experience of dying to the old things of life, and baptism is an illustration of that. I'm entering into Jesus's death, and I'm raising into a new life in Christ. That's the purpose. And this is why full immersion is so important, because when God gives types and symbols and illustrations, he gives them for a specific reason. An example of this—I wasn't planning on going into—but an example of this is found in the Old Testament. Moses was told to strike the rock to provide water for the people in the wilderness when they were going through their exile, and he did strike the rock. The rock and water came out and blessed them. At a later instance in the Book of Numbers, I believe he's told to speak to the rock, and Moses, in his frustration with the obstinacy of the people, says. Listen here, you obstinate people, you insolent people. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Now, did Moses have any power in himself to provide water for the people? No, No, he was claiming a divine prerogative, and God did not take that lightly. And so he strikes the rock twice. Now, water does come out of that rock to provide for the people, but the problem here is that that's not the illustration that God gave them, right? Jesus died how many times for us? Once, the rock had already been struck, and to strike the rock is a misrepresentation of the symbol that God gave for the plan of salvation. The rock had struck once, and now you can just speak to the rock. You can come into the presence of Jesus, speak to Him, and ask for help, and those flowing streams of the Holy Spirit will minister to your every need but the type was distorted. It was misused, and it messed up what God was trying to teach the people. Baptism is no different. Any other form of baptism that is not what God taught and gave is a distortion of an important spiritual truth. Does that make sense? Right? Sprinkling does not teach the same lesson of dying and entering into Jesus' death and resurrecting as being fully immersed in water and raised. Does that make sense? And God took that very seriously with Moses, and I believe he takes it seriously today, that he wants us to do what he's asked in the way that he's asked, because it's teaching us of important spiritual truths. In fact, the word baptize means to immerse. It's from the Greek word baptizo, and it was a word that was used amongst people who would dye fabrics. They would dye the fabric, it would be one color, they'd put it in and immerse it, and it would come out different. Now, we are not saying that there's some holy magic mojo happening in this tank here, that when you come out of that water, all of a sudden everything that's a problem in your life is gone. I wish that was the case. Sanctification, we're told, is the work of a lifetime. But, What we are saying is we are making a public declaration that when I go into that water and come out, my desire is to be a different person from this day forward. Amen? That's what we're saying. So uh, we're buried into Jesus' death and risen again in the newness of life, and us coming out of the water is our act of faith that Jesus will raise us from the dead. Amen? We're declaring by faith that in the same way that I came out of this water, a new person, Jesus is going to raise me out of this earth or translate me a different person. It's an act of faith that Jesus will raise me from the dead. And this concept of being baptized by immersion is the same way that Jesus himself was baptized. It's in Matthew chapter three and verse one. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching. By the way, this was not a denominational title. He was John the baptizer. Um, For some people don't know that. Uh, So anyway, that's that's what's being said here, that John was baptizing people. It's just a title. There were no denominations at this stage. That's not what's being referred to. But in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. It's actually the bean, not bugs. Uh, verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan. And what were they doing? What was accompanying baptism? confessing their sins. They were, they were repenting and confessing of their sins, very similar to the sanctuary service, right? You came, you took that walk of shame of sorts, but you were making a declaration before the priest, not for their benefit. This was not the type of role that we, we hear about today where you go into a confessional booth and do something like that. It was you were confessing over the animal. You were confessing with God, this is something that's been in my life. I don't want that to be in my life anymore. Let's deal with that. Okay, that's what was happening in this situation. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance." So repentance should be something that, you know, is reflective of where you really want your life to go. Not, I repent to get out of trouble and keep living that way. He's saying, no, no, let your life bear fruit worthy of repentance, okay? And do not think to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Just because you come from Abraham's loins generationally does not entitle you to anything. You have to have your own experience, he's saying. Verse 10, And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn and will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So then Jesus comes from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, whoa, 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 I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? Now, we're going to address this whole situation on Tuesday night, okay? We're going to follow up on this idea of Jesus and His baptism and all of what led into that and why He needed to be baptized at that time. We'll address that Tuesday evening. But Jesus says, Permitted to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, we saw earlier in these verses that there was something that accompanied baptism. What was that? Do you remember? It rhymes with the word repentance. Repentance, right? So, but did Jesus have anything to repent of? No. no. And that's what John's saying. John understood what baptism means. I'm turning from an old life and I'm fully committing myself to a new life. But he knew that Jesus had nothing to repent of. But Jesus is doing this as our example. Not because he was a sinner, Jesus is doing this as your example and mine, that when you're making that full commitment, this is what it looks like. Okay? He's doing that as our elder brother, as our example. Okay? But Jesus says, "...permit it to be so for now, for thus it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness." And then he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Again, he's coming out of being immersed in water, out of the water. "...and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him." And then in verse 17, I love this. "...and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, "'This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased.'" And did you know this is exactly how God feels for every soul that gets baptized? Every son, every daughter. Behold, this is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. So confession accompanies the experience of baptism. We've talked about that. Repentance and baptism go hand in hand. And uh, we got that. Okay, so go to Acts chapter 22 now. Now let's look at some more stories. Okay, so, Jesus did this as our example. We'll talk about why that's significant Tuesday night. Now, let's go to Acts chapter 22. And, and again, it, maybe you didn't see yourself in the story of Nicodemus. Maybe you will in this one. Now, it happened in verse 6, As I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. This is Paul who was Saul of Tarsus, a violent persecutor against religion, he's now telling his testimony. If you remember in our second meeting together, we read him telling his testimony in Acts chapter 26 to King Agrippa. Here's another version of it in Acts 22. Now, it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, so he was going to persecute and actually arrest Christians in Damascus, that a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We address this idea that Jesus identifies with people who were persecuted by religionists, if you remember. So I entered and said, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. Verse 11. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus, and then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, he came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. Now, imagine that this guy, Saul of Tarsus, has voted for the death of your family members and fellow church members, Maybe even he's come after you at some point in your life. We don't know all the story, but here's what we do know. To muster the unselfish love to refer to this man as brother Saul is nothing short of a miracle. Are you with me? Only God can do something like that. And what I love about this, we saw this in Nicodemus. There was personal effort and investment made in these individuals, calling them to a decision. Right? There was community involved with Jesus and Nicodemus, and we see it again here that Ananias is the community that's afforded to Paul to help him work through what has happened and what God is doing in his life. Because imagine, everything you thought was true is now wrong. Right? Some of us, as I talked about in my testimony this morning, I went through an experience hearing the truths that you've been hearing night after night and just wondered, have, have I been lied to about everything? Like, is anything I believe right? Or do I just need to kind of wipe the whole slate? Because I I don't know what to do with all of this. It's a lot, it can be. And we understand, I understand that. And this is why we give you the handouts and want you to have space to do this. This is why you're not here seven nights a week. We give you days to just kind of read, think, decompress. This is also why we have an opportunity for you to ask questions in your cards. And while I'm willing to answer your questions after the meetings, before the meetings, if you need a home visit. That's why we're doing this, to give you community to process through this, right? Because we want to be considerate. God did that in the Bible. We want to offer that today. That's why we do that. But God gave Ananias as his community to help Paul process what he was going through. And then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and to see the just one, that's Jesus, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord." So, in this instance, he's being, you know, he's being given guidance and community to process what God is speaking to him, what God is revealing to him, and he's calling him to make a decision, to follow through with what God is already showing him, right? So Saul had his own experience with Jesus, not with community first. He had exposure. He had convicting circumstances in his life, but he didn't fully get it until Jesus showed up. And some of us may have that story. There's little traces of things that have been happening in our life story that have convicted us of certain things, but we just could not go there. Maybe even we fought it hoof and claw, but then Jesus broke us. Jesus spoke into that experience and he's telling us today, you need to respond to that. Act upon that conviction that you have and what I've shown you myself. So some people, like my experience, I was watching TV. Right, and hearing this message through television. I wasn't coming to meetings like this. So I didn't have some of that seeming social pressure, right? That I should probably keep showing up or or do what they say I should do, because I don't want to let anybody down, or you know, these people have been studying with me and they're so nice. So I don't want to disappoint them, but I really don't believe this and I don't know what to do. We can have these different varying struggles through this process as we're figuring life out. Saul didn't have that. Right, Paul didn't have that. He, he had an initial convicting experience that we know of, at least, and then he had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus, and that changed everything. And that can be the case for some of us. For me, Jesus and I and my dad, we wrestled through this by watching TV, and then God brought us community later to sort through what we had learned and heard. Does that make sense? God works in varying ways to reach us, but the most important consistent lesson of what we're going to see tonight is we need to act upon what we're seeing. We need to make a decision based upon what god is showing us okay so he does arise and get baptized and god changes his life he becomes the greatest missionary the church has ever known as a result of responding to that conviction that he had from jesus himself and from the support and that call from the community for him to follow through on that decision that god had given him there's another one in acts chapter 8. Okay, this is the story of Philip in the Ethiopian. It says, Acts chapter 8, beginning of verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go towards the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. Imagine the Spirit of God is convicting you to go invest in some area that you know nothing about. My students know this. None of them are from Pennsylvania. is <laughs> well, that's not true. Some of them are from Pennsylvania, but very few of them are from local areas here in Pennsylvania. In fact, nearly all of our girls are from PA, uh, which is uh, someday we'll get a Pennsylvania boy. We got one last year. But so anyway, but our girls, they they don't know these communities, right? They haven't been to Pottsville, and yet they're knocking on doors. Some of them knocked on your doors. They don't know you. They just followed the prompting of the Spirit to go out and do what He's called them to do. And look at what happens here. Verse 27, So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of the great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So this person, the servant of God, just goes where God is leading, not knowing what this is going to look like. I just know that God's asked him to be available and to be willing to share wherever he sends me. And he goes and he finds somebody who has literally gone 1,500 miles in a chariot to worship in Jerusalem. Question, is this man committed? Yeah. I I don't know what it feels like to ride on a horse for very long, but I imagine sitting in a chariot is not going to be comfortable in that type. They didn't have shocks. They didn't have all these comfortable accoutrements that we have today. Clearly, this guy's committed. He doesn't know a lot, as we're about to see, but he is committed that he wants to know God and he's willing to respond to God, but he's going to need some help to know what to do. Okay? And so it says this, he was returning and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. The guy actually has access to some of scripture. Again, is he committed? Yes. Is he seeking? Yes. Yes. And then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So he places a burden on Philip's heart to search for someone. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He just knows that God is telling him to go reach out to this random person. He ends up encountering someone who's committed to this this growth journey, and they travel 1,500 miles to get there. So look at what happens next in verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. Imagine being a Bible worker like my students or like Lisa, and you show up to a house and the windows open, and you hear them reading Scripture. How would you feel about it? their, their interest at this stage, the potential ripeness of that fruit. Yeah. Like clearly this is a person who's seeking to know God. Like there's, it's easier to make inroads with people who are seeking God than people who want nothing to do with God. That's just logic, right? Clearly the spirit of God is doing something in this guy's life. And so he chimes in and says, Hey, I know I'm kind of randomly on the road here, but uh, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I, unless someone guides me? I want to, like, I'm reading, hoping to understand, but I don't know where to go. And maybe some of us fall in that category. We want to know God. We want to grow with Him, but I don't know where to start. No one taught me how to do this. No one taught me how to read Scripture, how to study Scripture and understand it for myself. And God in His mercy has sent you people. God in His mercy has brought you here. And he's giving you an opportunity to see and grow, and he's asking you to respond to what he's doing. Does that make sense? And he asked Philip to come and sit with him. So the place in the scripture which you read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth, and in his humiliation his justice was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life was taken from the earth." Verse 34. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I asked you, of whom does a prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this at this scripture, what does he do? Preach he preached Jesus to him. Beloved, we've done that every night, haven't we? Yeah. Every single night we've been preaching Jesus. Because that's what our call is. No matter what it is that we choose to believe, it better tell me something about Jesus. It has to. If he's the whole point of this whole thing, then why are we talking about things that have no relation to him? They have to have a relation to him. That's what the whole point is. But it says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Now, let me ask you a question here. What from the scroll of Isaiah here has anything to do with baptism? Nothing. So, why is the guy asking to be baptized? Clearly, the things that Philip was teaching him brought up the topic of baptism. Are you with me? He doesn't know where to go, he doesn't know what to believe, but someone is helping him. This is what the plan of salvation looks like. And part of that process of responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and repentance is deciding to be baptized, to be immersed into the death of Jesus and raised again to newness of life. That's why this... Philip didn't ask him to be baptized, he asked Philip to be baptized. Philip told him how the process works and he got it. Why? Because God knew he was ready. And when God knows that you're ready, that's when he sends people to you. Are you hearing me this evening? When God knows that you're ready, he sends people to help us because we all need community, beloved. We're not going to heaven alone. Now, no one else can save you. Only Jesus can do that. And you're not saved by membership or fellowship. That's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is God intended for our healing journey to involve community. Amen? And our spiritual growth is going to involve community. That's how he works, because he himself is a holy triune community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He understands that he made us for that need, not just a need for a husband and for a wife, but also a need of a healing, encouraging, nurturing community of faith. Amen? Amen. Even pastors need pastors, right? Even pastors need people holding their arms up when they have those circumstances. God knows we need that. And so Philip said to him, if you believe with all your heart, you may. If you're fully committed to this, this is a good decision to make. And was he committed? Absolutely. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What we are doing in baptism is declaring by faith that Jesus is not just the Savior. He is my Savior, and I'm committing my life to him in public baptism. Okay, it continues. So, he commanded the chair to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, again, fully immersed, came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. He disappeared. So, the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he went, uh, till he came to Caesarea. But again, I just love how God is showing us how this works. When people are seeking, God brings people into their lives to help them take the next step. And it could be that that person passes off the scene and someone else is gonna come along to help you take the next step. Philip wasn't with this guy the rest of his life, but he was there when he needed to make a big decision. Are you with me? And we need to be open to that, right? We can't celebrate people or idolize people just because God in his mercy has sent certain people into our lives to help us take the next step they're not the point they they are children of god they're ambassadors of god to do a great work but they came to tell you about jesus and connect you with jesus not to connect you to them and i don't mean you shouldn't be their friends or stay connected what i mean is you shouldn't be dependent upon them to live spiritually do you understand the difference we have to be fully connected to the vine for ourselves not by proxy Right? Not that I'm connected to this strong spiritual person to have a connection with Jesus. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. Amen. We believe that every human being can have direct access to Jesus Christ Himself. You can pray to Jesus for yourself. You can study scripture for yourself. We may need coaching and help to get there, but the point is we don't need another man or another office holder in the church to be able to get to heaven. You can go straight to Jesus for yourself. Amen? Straight to Jesus. Okay, so he needed someone in his life to help him understand what the Bible teaches, and his eyes were open and he decided to be baptized. That's the Ethiopian. Here's another one in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas had been arrested for preaching the gospel. They got in trouble. They got busted for preaching Jesus, right? And they get thrown into prison. And beginning at verse 25, at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Now, if you just got beaten, and thrown into prison, would your first instinct be to thank God for what just happened today? No. And would you be inclined to have a public, loud worship service when everybody else is asleep? I'm a people pleaser, y'all. Like, are you kidding? Like, silence, stop it. Pray in your head, bro. Like, don't wake anybody up. What are you singing for? Are you crazy? That was not their thought. We're going to give glory to God for what he's doing in our lives. And it pays off, beloved, that holy boldness. And the prisoners were listening to them. Somebody here was telling the story of somebody listening when they were pretending not to listen. Amen. God is in the business of doing powerful things. People were listening and suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loose. And this could be an opportunity to say, God heard my prayer. Make a run for it. They don't do that. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called to the loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, he ran in, and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Is this guy seeking? Some of us, maybe this is our story. It was a tragedy that led us to seek a near miss in life, a car accident that could have happened but didn't, a diagnosis that looked one way and changed. But man, it got us thinking some, some stirring event happened in our lives, and God has to kind of do this inventory, and we just wonder, well, what do I do in this moment? And again, when you see the Spirit of God, when you see those curtains shaking, do something about it. Respond. So this guy says, look, what do I need to do to be saved? Clearly, you have something that I don't. Because in your trial, you have peace. But in my trial, I was about to kill myself. I felt that life was hopeless and meaningless, and I might as well just end it because I'm gonna be in a lot of trouble in this trial. Why did you respond as you did in your trial? I want what you have. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. He brings them to his home and they start teaching him about Jesus. Just like Philip, they preached Jesus to him and his whole household. They walk him through the whole plan of salvation and how things work. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. And when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all of his household. Amen? What a dramatic change of events to go from, what are these crazy guys doing, singing and praying, but anyway, I don't care, I'm going to move on with my life, falling asleep, an earthquake happens, you think everyone's gone and your whole life is over, and then you realize that they're not gone That there's grace in the midst of my trial. That goodness of God led him to repentance. Do you see that? That undeserved goodness of God led him to repentance. What do I need to do to be saved? How do I get what you've got? I'll have what he's having. How do I get it? And they walk him through the plane of salvation. They teach him the things of God. Again, circumstances came into his life, and when he had an opening... And the tenderness of heart, God sends people. God sends community to help them take the next step. They move on with their lives. They don't stay there. But in that moment, was it worth it? Yeah. Absolutely. It didn't just lead to his salvation. Who else ended up having a salvation experience? His whole family. The whole household. I love this. Okay. And so in response to that teaching, they were baptized. And now we'll look at the story of Peter. Uh, This is not as directly tied to the topic of baptism, but it is tied to the topic of being born again and having that response to the Spirit of God working in our lives. So this is Luke 22, 31 to 32. This is from the King James Version. This is right before Jesus is going to leave the disciples uh, by being arrested and eventually dying. Right in the kind of this intimate moment he has with them, he says, "'The Lord said to Simon, 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 behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat.'" Jesus peels back the curtain and shows in that big battle we talked about in our second meeting together, that great controversy. Satan's wanting to take you. He's wanting to sift you as wheat. He's wanting to pull you away from me. But I've prayed for you. Amen? I've prayed for you. Beloved, some of us are having things come into our lives. We started coming to these meetings and stuff is happening. Difficult things are coming our way that didn't come our way before these meetings. And some of us are wondering Should I even keep going if life is getting more difficult than before I went to those meetings? Well beloved anytime the spirit of life is present the spirit of death is also present When Jesus is being born into the world, there's a death decree When the last spirit of revival is coming on the earth, there's a death decree for the people of God This is this is how it works beloved And we need to understand that just because a battle's raging doesn't mean you made the wrong decision. Many times it means that you made the right decision. And God will stand with you through these trials, but we've got to stand. We've got to trust Him and cling to Him in this. And and as you heard this morning, (laughs) I've had a few my day, right? They've happened, but God has seen me through every single one of them. And so Jesus is praying for us in that moment. That brings me consolation. When I realize I'm struggling and Satan's trying to pull me back, when God's trying to pull me to him, Jesus is praying for me in that moment. Amen? Amen? He ever lives to intercede for us, we're told. And he says that your faith failed not. He's not just praying for you that I hope he doesn't blow it. I pray that your faith doesn't fail. And he's praying that your faith doesn't fail. And then he says, and when you are converted, the, King, the new King James says, when you've returned, strengthen your brethren. Now, Was Peter committed to Jesus at this stage in his life? Absolutely. In Luke chapter 5, he has this miraculous catch of fish. He forsakes two boatloads full of fish and follows Jesus. He's got a wife, and he leaves his wife trusting God will provide because God has a specific call in his life. Peter is committed. But Peter also has baggage and reservations. Maybe you can relate to this right? There's people in this room, I don't care how long you've been a member of any church. Some of us have that experience that, yes, we're committed to God, but not fully. There are things that are drawing us. There are things that are pulling us. And Jesus is asking us to take another step forward, that we need a deeper conversion experience. Not just I prayed a prayer at some open part of my life 20 years ago, Jesus is wanting us to have an experience of continual deepening repentance, of continual deepening conversion. Are you with me? And this is the story with Peter here. He had a relationship with Jesus, but it wasn't the experience that it needed to be. He was cherishing preconceived ideas that weren't in harmony with God's will, that Jesus is gonna go take the Romans off the throne and I'm gonna be with them. I'm gonna be one of his chief people. And he's striving with the other guys for supremacy. He says in another place jesus all these other guys are losers certainly they will leave you but i'm not going to leave you clearly he needs a deeper experience with jesus when you're still striving to be better than the other guy we need a deeper experience with jesus i hope you're hearing me tonight when we're striving to be better than the other guy when we're striving and and conniving and and hook and crook and all this other nonsense to try to get better than other people and staring at other people's issues. And this happens to us in the church. We start like humble disciples and we end up like like crusty Pharisees at the end of the day because at least I'm not like this guy, at least I'm not like this guy. And we start judging people. We start criticizing people. Can you believe they wore that? Can you believe they smell like that? Can you believe they do that? And when we came in, we felt like all I have is Jesus and all I need is Jesus. But there can be a hardening of our hearts that happens after a commitment to Jesus. Can that happen? Absolutely. It can happen and we have to guard ourselves with continual repentance, continual, deeper conversion experiences. You can't forget where you came from, beloved. It's dangerous and it will lead to you betraying Christ when he needs you the most. That's what happened to Peter. A man who was committed to God betrayed Jesus when he needed him the most. I'm no better than him. I'm just as capable if I don't keep focusing on a deeper conversion, a deeper consecration, a deeper commitment. Amen? There's a lesson for us here, no matter how long we've been in the church. He was seeking for supremacy. He didn't realize his need to fall on the rock of Christ and be broken. He was comfortable around Jesus and was doing work for Jesus, but he still needed a deeper conversion. Just because people praying around you doesn't make you uncomfortable anymore doesn't mean that you've arrived. Are you with me? We all need that deeper conversion experience. So then he continues. But he said to Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Was that true? He thought it was, but was it true? No. No. Jesus tells him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you deny three times that you know me. Jesus knew his story, and he knew the chapter of failure that was to come. But did Jesus give up on him knowing that? No. Absolutely not. Do you think Jesus knows your future chapters of failure? Yes. Do you think he's going to give up on you? No. no. Remember that. When those days come, remind yourself. He knew this day would come. And he's still striving for me. He's praying for me even now. And the safest place for me to be in that moment is not to run from Jesus, but to run to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Having arrested him, they led Jesus and brought him into their high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. Now, is this a big, burly person with a handgun that's threatening Peter? No. No. Okay, it's it's, it's a young servant girl, but he denied him. Who's him? Jesus. Jesus. He denied Jesus, saying, woman, I don't know him. All these other guys are losers, Jesus, but I'm going to follow you. I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. That after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he was a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're saying. We can have those moments. People who were committed to Jesus can have those moments. This guy cast out demons. He healed sick people. He knew the Lord. Spent three and a half years with the living Christ, and he still needed a deeper conversion experience. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and then verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Jesus makes eye contact with him from across the courtyard, and when he looks in the face of Jesus, there's no anger there. There's no anger. There's compassion, and it breaks him. And Peter falls on the rock and is broken. He runs out of that place. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he weeps bitterly, verse 62 tells us. He realized my experience with Jesus isn't what I thought it should be. It wasn't what I thought it was. God, save me. God, help me. And did he hear that prayer? You better believe it. Jesus told him, when you're converted, comfort your brethren. Jesus knew he would come back around, but he also knew he's going to have to fall on the rock and realize his need of a deeper conversion experience. Beloved, we all need that, every single one of us. And this is what it means to be born again, to recognize our need of a Savior and to forsake the things that are pulling us away from him and to go fully forward following his footsteps. Amen? Amen. All right, what does baptism look like? What's the point of it? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. Well, first of all, has this made sense, these stories? Yeah. I believe that every one of us is going to find ourselves in at least one of those stories, maybe multiples. But now let's go on to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we've all been made to drink into one spirit. The Bible says that when we're baptized, we're baptized into the body of Christ. This is not just an individual decision. We're baptized into a healing community. Do you see that? He's calling us into a community, into the body of Christ. And Ephesians 5:23 says that the husband's the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he's savior of the body. We're baptized into the body of Christ, of which he is the head. Right? That's the point. And we're told in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 5 that there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. There is one physical form of baptism that God has set up, and it's baptism by immersion. It's the only option we have in Scripture. And Jesus gives this command in the Great Commission. It says, "...and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit." teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus doesn't leave you after you're baptized. He follows you every step of the way. He's the one leading you into baptism, and he's the one holding your hand as you walk out of that tank in your Christian experience. Amen? Amen. And you're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. You're baptized into that healing community, first and foremost. All of them are proud of you all of them are fighting for you and laboring for you and encouraging you and protecting you and equipping you picking you up on those down days the entire godhead is rooting for you and fighting for you amen when you're baptized in their name you're being carried about with their protection and their guidance and you'll keep leading you even after that So he gave the command to make disciples, to baptize them, and to continue teaching them. There's community at every step of baptism. You're being discipled before you're baptized. You're baptized into the body of Christ, the Bible says, and you're still being taught and nurtured by the body of Christ even after your baptism. That's the biblical teaching. You're not in this thing alone, beloved. There's a healing community that's tied into this entire process, and that's so essential. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter, after his, con- his deeper conversion experience, preaches a fire sermon, a Pentecost sermon, that cuts people to the heart. And they, said to him, and they said, well, what do we do? And he says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, this idea of repentance and conversion and baptism and a greater measure of the Spirit of God. These are all packaged together, right? They all go together in that plan of salvation. There's a recognition of a sorrow for sin and a longing to turn from it. And uh, this is actually James. I didn't change the reference here. This is James. Oh, dang. Uh, It's verse 18. Let's find out because I would hate to be a... Heretical teacher here, James chapter uh, 18, let's see, for chapter 3, no, chapter 2, yep, chapter 2, in fact, I'm going to take this off of here real quick and change this so I don't lead any poor people astray, James 2 and verse 18, okay, James chapter 2 and verse 18 says this, But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. And he says, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Notice, we are not saved by works, we're saved by faith, but faith without works is dead, he says in another place. And this is super, super important, because what he's saying is, faith without works isn't faith at all. When he says that faith without works is dead, he's saying it's not faith at all. Anyone who has a genuine encounter with Jesus, they're going to live a different life right? They're not going to live a perfect life the next day, but their life is going to be continually growing in a different fashion than where it was before. Works are just the fruit of a conversion experience, not the root or the cause of conversion. Amen? We don't believe that. We don't believe in salvation by works at all, okay? So, true faith in God will lead us to live as if what we believe is true and not just intellectually agree with the Bible without a transformed life. Does that make sense? true conversion is going to lead to a change of life that's that idea of being born again okay in john chapter 17 and verse 3 jesus says and this is eternal life that they may know you the only true god and jesus christ whom you have sent eternal life true eternal life is knowing god intimately and jesus christ whom you have seen whom he sent and you can have that experience today right now you can begin to experience the glories and the joy of eternal life right now we're told So my question to you is the same question that the Ethiopian was asking of Philip. What would hinder you from being baptized? What would hinder you from making that decision and from hearing those words from God himself? This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. What would keep you from making that decision? And so I want to ask you to pray in this moment. For every head to be bowed. Well, first, before you do that, has this made sense? I want to make sure that that's clear. Has this evening's teaching made sense? Do you see this from Scripture? Yeah. Okay. Then, as every head is bowed and every eye is closed, I want to make a few appeals this evening, and then we'll we'll um, we'll respond to the appeals, and then we'll record those appeals on your cards after this. But the first thing is this. Number one, that I accept the biblical teaching that baptism is to be by full immersion. If you see that from Scripture, I just invite you to raise your hand to heaven this evening. I see that baptism is by full immersion from Scripture. Okay, you can put your hands down. The second is, I desire a deeper conversion experience with Jesus. If that's you, I invite you to raise your hands to heaven. I want a deeper conversion experience with Jesus. Maybe I've known Jesus, I've had an experience with Him, but I want a deeper experience. Amen. Put your hands down. number three, uh, that I would like to be baptized by full immersion. I would like to be baptized or rebaptized by full immersion. and if that is you, I invite you to raise your hands to heaven this evening. I want to be baptized or rebaptized by immersion. Amen. Hands down. The number four, I've got questions number five prayer requests. We'll deal with those in a moment. You'll record those. But God, in heaven, as we pray here, I just want to ask you to seal these decisions in heaven. Uh, Lord, you've seen our hearts. You've seen us respond. And Lord, I just praise you that you're speaking to us. And Lord, I believe that everyone in this room sees the curtain shaking in our personal experience. We see you working. And God, I thank you that many of us are responding today to say yes, that we're saying, I recognize the Spirit of God is doing something in my life, that God in His mercy is sending a community into my life, whether it be individuals who are studying with me or visiting me or praying with me, or if it's individuals, or just by coming to these meetings uh, and recognizing there's people here that want to support me in being who God has made me to be. God, you've seen that, and we want to thank you for that. And I pray that you would guide us as a church and how to nurture and invest in everyone who's made this decision to encourage them. And I pray for those who are still in the valley of decision, who are trying to process through what this looks like for them. Lord, I pray that you would bless them, that you would help them, and like Nicodemus, that you would keep striving with them and encouraging them that this is the direction you want their life to go, and that you would be with them every step of the way until they are ready to make that decision. Lord, we love you and we thank you, and we wanna ask this in Jesus' name, amen.